Welcome to the You Have Me at Curia podcast, part one of November's Staff Picks. This is the podcast that gives an opportunity to the team at Curia to discuss some of their favorite films on the platform. I'm your host, Ricky Camilleri, and I'm going to sit down with the Curia team and pour over some of these movies, some of which are new discoveries, longtime favorites, or have a kind of personal significance for the folks that curated them. It's a robust collection this month, which is why we've broken it up into two episodes. But let's just start with what collections we're going to be talking about on this episode. We're going to be discussing Beyond the Music, Gather Around, The Danger of a Single Story, and You Can't Choose Your Family, as well as the Shorts Collection. First up, we're talking to Lauren Clark about two collections. They are You Can't Choose Your Family and The Danger of a Single Story. Lauren, tell me about The Danger of a Single Story. Yeah, I actually watched the TED Talk in college. Um, It's by, I try to say her name correctly, Chimimanda Ngozi Adichie. I probably said that so wrong, Um, but I tried. Um, She's incredible, and I, I just remember watching it and it feeling so true and sort of really resonating in a lot of different ways with the conversations that are happening right now around representation and why it matters and sort of why um, it's so problematic when you only see one kind of person represented in one kind of way and how then they sort of have to speak for the experience of an entire group and um, that shouldn't be the case. So I really uh, loved the TED Talk and think that it should be infused into this industry as much as possible. And so I was trying when we were going about like brainstorming different collections um, and ideas of ways to group films. I thought it'd be really cool to highlight some films that have perspectives that perhaps aren't given as much space as they should be. um, And to discuss those, you know, films in context with each other. If I had not grown up in Nigeria, and if all I knew about Africa were from popular images, I too would think that Africa was a place of beautiful landscapes, beautiful animals, and incomprehensible people fighting senseless wars, dying of poverty and AIDS, unable to speak for themselves, and waiting to be saved by a kind white foreigner. This single story of Africa ultimately comes, I think, from Western literature. For me, the way that I interpreted it is that even if whether you're telling a positive or negative story, oftentimes those stories are being told by an outsider of a, of a, of a marginalized person, someone who's not of that community, and so therefore are only not necessarily even reflecting on, but only telling one story, which is what they have learned through usually predominantly white media and white narratives about that uh, about that marginalized people. So even if you're telling a story uh, of, you know, a positive story or a story about like, you know, a, a, mar- a victim, a victim of some kind, you may still just be telling that narrative that 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 only white people in particular are comfortable with. Yeah. And so therefore you need to inject yourselves or like or, or bring stories out of these communities that are told by people within these communities. So you're not still telling that one idea about them or they are not representing still one idea. Yeah, no, I think that's really true. The power of perspective um, as an artist like and a filmmaker. And I feel like both films actually that I rewatched and we're talking about today, I was thinking about this constantly because I think you know, when you're talking about a film or a story, uh, there's always ways that it's both sort of subverting and supporting whatever the like mainstream narrative is. And so I 
I'm trying to discuss how like film sort of does this sort of both and idea of being both positive in some ways and negative in other ways. And I think that like any piece of art, because you're representing life and reflecting it and therefore like reflecting the systems within it, no matter what, like you can't have one story um, or one film say everything, right? Because then it would say nothing, if that makes sense. Right. But I think the, I, I agree with you completely. And I, one thing that I always get frustrated, frustrated with when it comes to film criticism now is this idea that, um, a character needs, needs to mean, or a movie needs to mean everything to everybody at once, right? Yeah. It needs to represent everything, which is just such a, a phony criticism in a way to not actually have to talk about art. But I think where danger of a single story comes from is, for example, if you're talking about an African-American person and whether they are the perpetrator or the victim of your all you know to talk about is gang violence or poverty in some way, yeah. which is you're just reflecting on stereotypes about these people and you're not actually, you know, showing the the full spectrum picture of a, a of a human being, even if they do live in 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 poverty or or are subject to, you know, the kind of stereotypes that that, that community is not is um often spoken about. And and I think that when we talk about the two movies that were the whole collection, but in the two movies that we taught that we're talking about, it's especially with Deepan, the the film that I chose, it's about starting with that single story and then finding ways to go beyond that. But I want to talk about your movie first. You chose um, with some of my influence, yes, <laughs> um, uh, Ang Lee's 1993 film, uh, The Wedding Banquet, which was part of his Father Knows Best trilogy. You are cordially invited to a very special wedding. Now repeat after me. I wee wee. Wee wee. Take you wee tong. Wee wee. In sickness and in health till death do us part. Cure sickness and death. The bride is calm. (laughs) The groom is cool. And the parents are the picture of happiness. (laughs) There's only one problem. Everyone wants to kiss the bride, except the groom. What started as a little white lie. Don't you see? This way, Weiwei can stay in the States and paint. You can- tell me about, tell me what you thought of the wedding banquet and how it reflected um, this, this idea, this danger of a single story idea. No, it was a perfect recommendation. I loved watching it. It was... If the themes of it feel so relevant um, to just the world right now and also to the danger of the single story and this idea of both and that we were talking about beforehand, I feel really lucky in that like in school, I always talked about films within that context of interlocking identities, whether that's race, gender, sexuality, which are all at play in The Wedding Banquet. And you can definitely feel the different sides of that through the different characters, which is really, really cool. You can see how every, um, there's a tension of like, you know, the main relationship between Simon and I'm forgetting the main character's name. Um, And then there's also sort of like the female perspective with the girl who gets roped into it and then the mom and, um, and all of it is portrayed so lovingly, uh, which really stood out to me, this sort of conflict generationally, which, you know, I think is also really felt today. Uh, The parents 
values are clearly wrong, but also not without a tremendous amount of love, which was so interesting to watch. Like, I, I think sometimes we think that like love and righteousness are, you know, happen together, but that's not true. And I think this film really showed that. Yeah. And I think when we talk about showing these things with love, there isn't really like a judgmental eye on the mm-hmm. characters of this film. Even when a character has um, prejudice or is is homophobic, there's something that Ang Lee and, and his collaborators are bringing to the table to sort of put you in their perspective and to not judge or, or hate them for it, which is um, maybe a brave thing, a braver thing to do now than it was to do in 1993. Yeah. But I think the, the, the point of that is to sort of is, is less to create villains and to sort of not define anybody by a single idea. Yes, they have these prejudices, but they also come from this place. And those prejudices are kind of informed by how much they are wrapped up in wanting this and expected this other particular thing for their son. Right. So you're never just sitting there being like, oh, this person's evil because they are they're homophobic. It's all everything is kind of informed by by someone doing the best that they can. In some yeah, capacity. I totally agree. And I was struck by how the the parents it's so clear, like I just like I said, how much love they have for their son. And at the same time, I don't feel like the film uses that as like an excuse. Again, it's that sort of like both things are true. Like they love um, their son and they genuinely want the best for him. And they come from this environment where um, that it doesn't excuse the fact that their behavior. And I don't think the film does either. And like the way that they are, you know, treat the situation is wrong. Um, And that both things, you know, exist together. Right. I, I, I feel like, um, we should briefly say what the movie is about without yes. giving it too much away. But um, uh, a young, uh, a young Taiwanese man is in a uh, same-sex relationship with the with a partner who he's had for a number of years. He's going to get thrown out of the country if he can't get a green card. And one of the ways that they that his that his partner comes up with him to get a green card is to is to uh, marry a woman. And he finds this other Chinese woman and it's sort of set up that he will, she will be his, his partner and things sort of spiral out of control from there as the parents get involved and a wedding banquet takes place. Right. Mm-hmm. No, that was great. <laughs> yeah. Hijinks ensue as they say. <laughs> um, but in standard Angley fashion, you know, as much as we're tying all this to the danger of a single story theme, I just I do want to say about Ang Lee is I love this period of Ang Lee filmmaking where it's so human centered. Um, and I feel like later in his career, he becomes very tech centered and very engaged with, you know, what he can do with the medium, be it like 4K 3D or, um, you know, special effects. And, and that stuff is great. But the, that stuff is even at its best when it's human centered and it's focused on the, the emotional dilemma of the characters in the movie, because these three films, part of the father knows best trilogy, the, um, the ice, uh, not the ice age, the, the ice storm are just such incredible films because they're so focused on all these sort of different objectives and motivations and fears and desires of the characters in the movies. They're really human character centered stories. And he was so good at doing 
a lot with very little. Like the budget of the wedding banquet is clearly very small, but the story feels tremendous by the time that you get to the end of the film. And it's incredibly moving the way that these characters come to terms with what with what has happened. Um, and I just think it's a, such a great example of how amazing a storyteller he is on such a small scale and can be on a large scale, but hasn't in a little while. Yeah. No, I was watching it just so impressed with how he was able to just really show every perspective. You're never like this person's right and this person's wrong. And those are like my favorite kinds of stories where you every where there's an ensemble and then you can see you're going back and forth sort of internally with every empathizing with every single character and the dilemma that they're in. And that was like sort of perfectly paced um, throughout the film. It's it's it. It's hard to convey to people who don't write or or make movies how difficult it is to to give characters those moments because there's the sense that everything needs to be tied to a driving plot or story. And if it's and the easy way to do that is to make villains and to mm-hmm. make everything against another one. But as soon as you start trying to take moments to give people perspective or give the audience a different perspective on your character you run the risk of removing them from the plot a little bit or finding ways to tie that in it's incredibly difficult to do and he and again his collaborators James Seamus and and I think Neil Fang um, but then consistently afterwards James Seamus were were just incredible at telling those stories yeah, and it is again that thing where you can't say everything, and so being able to pick and choose at all those moments, you know, obviously you want to give every character in a story um, their full rounded experience, but a lot of times that doesn't happen just simply because it will, you know, inherently take away from something else in the story. So watching it and being able to be like all of these characters have just enough um, of, you know, what there could possibly be in this film in order to have a coherent message at the end still uh, was really cool. So I chose for uh, my Danger of a Single Story, um, uh, Deepan, which is uh, a film by Jacques Audiard. Donc essayez de m'expliquer pourquoi et comment vous êtes euh, parti du Sri Lanka. C'est notre nouveau gardien lui. Um, it's a film that used um, non-actors, uh, and it's about a a couple who's who's who become a married couple basically, so that they can become refugees in Paris after surviving the Sri Lankan civil war. One of them, the 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 patriarch of the family, actually being a um, uh, a member of the Tamil Tigers, uh, which was one of the the Revolutionary Army uh, in the Sri Lankan war, and now he and his um, sort of new wife who he's just met at a refugee camp and their new daughter who they've also just met at a refugee camp uh, have been relocated in a Paris uh, kind of like a housing project. That's like a, a kind of overrun with, um, with, with, with crime. And I wouldn't say it's overrun, but there's a part of it that a criminal element really hangs out in. It's definitely got a kind of um, 
like death wish vibe to it which is really funny for a movie like this to to have and which was kind of if you go back and look at reviews the main criticism of it which is that it feels like a neo neo realist movie that all uh, about telling an immigrant story that all of a sudden becomes a kind of like violent revenge fantasy i happen to love that element of it and think that the movie sets it up very well off the top i do wonder about this though in regards to the danger of a single story theme because in some ways it it does fit into that danger of a single story right because they're the characters um are largely defined by the 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 traumatic stress and the and 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 what they were before moving to Paris and their um, others don't actually know anything about them and assume a little bit about them. But we, as the audience are going through the movie being like, how is this war? How is this man's experience in the war going to inform what's going to happen in this movie? Something's going to happen. Something's going to happen here. And then eventually it, it, it does. Um, yeah, I really, I really love Depend. It's the first time that I had seen it. Uh, I had always meant to watch it. I loved a prophet when it came out and um, I really embraced the, um, the, the, the shift that the movie takes. I don't, I feel like I might've given too much away, but you know, if you, once you start the movie, you, and, and he goes from <laughs> the Sri Lankan civil war and violence to this place that he's working and that he's li living and working as the caretaker. And they're all being kind of like harassed by these drug dealers and gangsters that live there. You can kind of see where it's going to be building to, which was kind of shocking to me that critics didn't, didn't see that coming. And the film also takes major considerations in not, um, sort of highlighting or glamorizing the violence, the way that something like death wish does. So I think it's a relatively sensitive movie in, in, in regards to what it attempts what it attempts to do. Uh, and now uh, the second collection that you and I are talking about, Lauren, is you can't choose your family. Uh, it seems to me that um, it's um, the title itself uh, is pretty self-explanatory. But in a briefly explain what you can't choose your family is. Uh, you Can't Choose Your Family is all films about different familial dynamics and relationships and the push and pull and tension of um, just family life. And it's family life in a loose term because it really does apply to uh, like a wide variety of what those relationships look like. And you chose The Virgin Suicide, Sofia Coppola's first film. So much has been said about the girls over the years. Those girls have a bright future ahead of them. But we have never found an answer. Her act was a cry for help. I heard it was an accident. Even then, as teenagers, we tried to put the pieces together. We still can't. We got a full tank of gas. We'll take you anywhere you want to go. About time. We've been waiting for you guys. enough to know how bad life gets uh what made you choose this movie yeah so i quickly want to do my due diligence and give a quick content warning because um as i'm sure you assume it's about suicide and um i chose it for so many reasons there's so much going on in this film but um it, it was uh in the danger of a single story collection at one point um but you know could go either way uh, and 
it was interesting. I had seen this film before to go back and watch um, and see the way not only the film talks about suicide, but then also the way it's the reviews talk about suicide as sort of as being very different than how we now are reframing conversations about suicide as an illness and something that happens to a person. Like the new language will be like death by suicide, whereas so much of the reviews around this film are like, why did the girls commit suicide? Which again is not, I've been told, the proper way of talking about it nowadays. Um, but it's obviously not, I don't, that's not even really um, a full just critique of this film. It's There's a long long tradition of um, women in literature and suicide and sort of it being symbolic in, in film. I'm thinking of Thelma and Louise, it being symbolic um, as sort of the the only way out, et cetera. Um, so I, I almost don't know what that means now looking back at, the, again, very long tradition um, in the literature of, of these sort of like female characters when now the conversation just, it's almost like we shouldn't even be asking that question um, of why a a person chooses to do something or or chooses to end their life because that's that's not the way it happens. When I think of the virgin suicide, I always think of it in terms of Sofia Coppola's style and how she defined herself so well with that film and also immediately perplexed audiences and and critics um because it's this this idea that it's it's called the virgin suicides you think it's going to be about suicide and you think it's going to like really lay out the case as to why these characters do what they do but like her other films it's much more flighty it's much more open to interpretation and it's all about uh for lack of a better way to put it it's all about vibes versus facts Does that <laughs> so make, do you know what i mean by that yes exactly exactly and if you can get on the vibe and the wavelength of the movie you can really feel what the movie's doing and it's about that feeling which i think other filmmakers have tried to do I do a lot more these days as well. I think of Paul Thomas Anderson and what he does with his film sort of post Magnolia, which is sort of about like trying to take away the elements that are facts in a scene that you'll be able to get over upon second watch and make the audience want to consistently go back because it's about a feeling that you can always kind of investigate. Whereas like you can't continue to investigate facts. They kind of lay flat on the table. And once that's done, it's done. And there's something about, Sofia Coppola were with this and with Somewhere and with Lost in Translation and um, some of her other films. She she's she's very good at doing that, and I think it's hard for a lot of people to 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 get on her wavelength. They expect more of the movie to tell them what exactly is happening and why. Yeah, it's so unlike like narrative film and yeah, in the way that I think a lot of people expect it, but it works so perfectly for the story. I feel like because. It does. It did feel to me watching it like like these characters are really just slipping into sort of roles that are defined for them or set. You know these sort of social standards of like being a you know in suburban America as a young woman or a young man. This sort of group of boys and the group of girls and the interchangeable nature of each of the sisters and how they're not except for Lux, who's identified sort of primarily by her like attractiveness and sexuality which says something in itself but except for her they all sort of blend into each other but it does feel like the characters aren't 
they're not people with agency and identifying traits and factors, their roles, you know, within the context of what the film is trying to say. Um, For my, you can't choose your family. I chose uh, probably one of my favorite comedies ever made. I've loved this movie since I was in high school and it's uh, David O. Russell's flirting with disaster. Well, the mystery of your unknown self is about to unfold. Mel Copeland is going on a journey of discovery. I tell you, I went to the adoption agency and they found my real mother. Aren't we good enough parents? And it's going to be quite a trip. I'm Tina Kalb. Tina is with the adoption agency where you adopted me. Your mother lives in San Diego, California. Hi! <laughs> There's been a terrible mistake. Valerie's not your mother, Mel. I feel like a complete idiot. <laughs> Mel, your father is named Fritz Boudreau, and he lives in Gundal, Michigan. Your mother meets this guy, what, and they, they ran off, off yep. together. You're saying you're not sure if you're my father? Yeah, they ask your mother about that. We're going to New Mexico. Mary Schlichting. This is not the way I planned this trip. Well, I think you're doing a great job. You're attracted to her, aren't you? No. Now they're not just flirting with each other. Oh my god. Oh my god. They're flirting with disaster. You haven't been treating um, her very Nobody well. does um like the the hilar- the the comedy of chaotic group dynamics the way that that Russell does just like competing motivations and everybody tripping over each other and fighting and getting mad. He's, he's, he's so good at layering motivations and, and, and hurdles for characters. And uh, it's also, I think one of the first times we really get the sort of um, neurotic Ben Stiller character, which became a staple of the late nineties into the, the early to mid aughts. Um, but this, in my opinion, in my mind is the first example of it. And um for those who haven't seen it, Ben Stiller plays a, a guy who's married to Patricia Arquette. They've just had a kid. They're having some sex issues in their relationship. And in the midst of that, he decides to go find his biological parents. His adoptive parents are played by uh, hilariously uh, by George Siegel and Mary Tyler Moore. But then Taya Leone is the adoption services woman uh, says that she's found Stiller's uh, birth mother and they go on a cross country road trip. Uh, Stiller, Patricia Arquette, and Taya Leone to find the the birth mother. It ends up, you know, where it's that's not her, and they have to go to another woman, and then another woman. They're just going across the country, and also collecting characters along the way. Two of those characters being um, Josh Brolin and Richard Jenkins, who play uh, FBI partners who are also lovers. Um, it's so great. It's like top to bottom, one of the funniest movies ever made. And uh, my friends and I from high school still quote to this day at the beginning of the movie, Ben Stiller is talking about, um, it opens with like a, a, a montage of people on the street and you hear Ben Stiller's voiceover saying, this could be my mother. And it cuts to another person. He's like, this could be my mother. And then he does it with a father. And it's like, <laughs> he's like, this could be my father. And it's like a wealthy man and like a top hat or something. And then like, he's like, or this could be my father. And it's like a shirtless crazy man in a tr- in the trash can who looks up at the camera and flips it off. I've always like loved that shot so much. Yeah. And um, the movie itself, uh, if, if you haven't seen it and if you're listening to this, you haven't seen it, like watch it immediately. It's so much fun. Yeah, no, I love David O. Russell, I feel like no, like he does family dynamics and relationships on a whole nother level. And all of his films, I just love watching the different di- mom, dad, sibling, like um, mother, dad. What am I saying? I'm thinking of Bradley Cooper, son uh, yeah. in Summer Linings Playbook. It's all so good. 
I love hearing stories about him like running a crazy chaotic set. Yes. Where he's like yelling at people. Yeah. And I'm always kind of like, well, have you seen the movies? <laughs> You're like, like, <laughs> right. Like, I mean, it, it doesn't take, it, it doesn't take, you know, uh, a, a chief detective to watch one of those movies and say, yeah, those sets are probably pretty rough. Like, <laughs> it looks like everybody's sweating and falling on each other and yelling at each other. Those, those things are not easy to find. It does feel like this sort of like perf- perfectly controlled chaos, like a lightning in a bottle kind of thing. From what I understand, it's not controlled at all. <laughs> <laughs> the film being controlled chaos. Yes, the yeah. film being controlled chaos. Um, Lauren, thank you so much for talking to me. Good to talk yeah. to you. Does this baby have a name yet? Four months old doesn't have a name. Well, don't blame me. I like the name Ethan. No, no, no. Ethan's too lame. Everything's too lame, too bold. This is becoming an embarrassing neurotic thing, Mel. It's not an embarrassing neurotic thing. This is about my real identity. It's about my background, okay? Don't be ridiculous. You're Mel Copeland. That's who you are. You know, this process will go a long way towards clarifying that identity issue. What process? Who is this new friend with the camera already? Well, I've only been trying to introduce her to you for the last 10 minutes. Her name is Tina Kalb, and she's here for a very important reason. Getting a divorce. She's a counselor. No, she's a lawyer. Would you Would you just zip it? Don't talk to your mother like that. We're not getting a divorce. Well, maybe you should if you can't name the baby. That is a terrible, sick thing to say. You yes. said it first. That's no excuse. If you say it fine, if I say it, I'm sick. Maybe. Tina is with the adoption agency. What adoption agency? The adoption agency where you adopted me. When I was a little baby, remember? Oh, my God. Up next, we have Ethia Riazza, who was discussing the Gather Around section, as well as Beyond the Music, and, of course, the Shorts Collection. Ethia, let's start with Gather Around. How do you define what Gather Around means? It's, you know, the perfect film to just watch with your family and friends. It's, you know, it's they're, they're feel-goods in a way, and um, it's just a great, you know, way to just be with your family and be all together and watch film. Right. And there's also a sense of like, kind of there, the way that they're going about telling the story, it's not really like a fable, but there is a sense that the movie itself is like, you know, instructing, like gather around, we're telling a story from the past Mm -hmm. in a way. Um, And in that regard, you chose Roberto Benigni's life is beautiful. Yes. Miramax home entertainment is proud to present an extraordinary new movie. Winner of three Academy Awards, Best Actor, Best Foreign Film, and Best Original Score. Meet a real-life Prince Charming. He has met the woman of his dreams, and he'll do everything in his power to sweep her off her feet and carry her away. Now, his fairy tale life takes a serious turn. To protect his family, this loving father has to turn the hard truth into a simple game. It's uh, one of my favorite movies out there. Um, you know, it's he directed, started, acted, uh, and co-wrote it. Like, he did everything <laughs> in this movie. And he won the Grand Prix of Cannes and won Best Actor and Best Foreign Film at the Academy Awards in 1998. So for sure, it's um, it was an amazing movie to be alive for <laughs> in those two years, 1997, 1998. Um, it's really a touching story of Guido, played by Roberto, uh, who's an Italian bookseller of Jewish ancestry. 
um, who lives in like his own really like imaginative world. Um, he has a really happy life, but then it all comes to a halt when his entire family is deported to a concentration camp during World War II. And his kid is also with him. And he tries to convince his son that the whole entire place they're in, the concentration camp, is a whole game um, with uh, a prize at the end, which is a tank, a military tank. Um, and it, it's just that the movie has two really, two halves, <laughs> two completely different halves. So the first half is, it's comedy. It's just comedic genius. It's how uh, Guido finds the love of his life. And, um, and just like the way Roberto like shot the film and like, and acted in it, he really reminds me of Chaplin. And that's the way he uses like his comedy uh, with his um, body, it's uh, really reminds me of Chaplin. And then the second half is just <laughs> really heartbreaking because you're in the concentration um, camp, and it's just um, a reality of how heartbreaking like it is that people's lives change in so little time. Um, and you really have pure comedy, but then you also like smile through tears, which is you know very. It's very special to to watch a film like that. I I had never seen this movie before watching it for this podcast, and I was always scared of watching this movie because um, I don't know if you can tell by just the natural tenor of my voice, but I'm really cynical. Mm. And um, it all like anytime someone was like a comedy about the constant a concentration mm-hmm. camp, I was like I no, I'm okay, thank you, <laughs> no no thank you from me. Yeah. Um, and but I was really moved by watching. It. I think I could. I think I could remove my my, you know, my own uh, hesitations right. enough to to really be moved by the film. And also, Roberto Benigni is such a singular performer. Yes. Um, at times, uh, irritating for a person of my uh, <laughs> like me. But I I love him in this, and I love him in um, Down Jarmusch is Down by Law, mm-hmm. and he is such a, a fun, one of you know every now and that we every now and then we get these incredible physical performers that just sort of appear, yes. and he's um, he's one of them. And uh, yeah, it's a pretty heartbreaking movie. I still have some trouble with a, a comedy in a Holocaust yeah. camp um, or in a concentration camp, but um, it's a uh, it's. It, it, it works. It's a heartbreaking film. It's it, it also just tackles how important and vital it, and like in your life is to have imagination and for a kid to be in that position too. Um, you know, everyone's wearing the the same clothing and you know, just you're just lost in, in, in there and how Roberto just really captured imagination with the kid in all their scenes and you know, he's trying to be the best father he can be to his son and that's the situation they're in. And it's just, I don't want to say the end, but like the end is just so heartbreaking. Um, but he, it's it's really just how there's hope for the future, kind of like how he, he really portrays that in a way throughout the film. And I don't know, I think everyone should watch this once in their lifetime. <laughs> Such a yeah. special movie. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, For my gather around, I chose Cinema Paradiso Mm. because um, it's a film that I had 
as well never seen and it seemed to me like if you're a movie lover and you haven't seen cinema paradiso like what's wrong with you (laughs) 12 years ago master filmmaker giuseppe tonatori won the academy award for cinema paradiso now miramax home entertainment is proud to present cinema paradiso the new version This Miramax Collector's Series DVD is digitally remastered, fully restored, and includes more than 51 minutes of never-before-seen footage. For those who've never seen it. For those who've never forgotten it. Discover what really happened to the love of a lifetime. Yeah, if you love movies, it's incredible. <laughs> like, it's mostly about the act of watching movies exactly. and how it brings people together and how it brings people of all different types together. But I will say, and maybe it's not for this podcast, I'll take the heat if I'm told afterwards that it's not for this podcast. <laughs> but one of the things that I loved about Cinema Paradiso is that it was also very much as much as it's a wholesome idea of the cinema and wholesome for every a wholesome place for everybody to get together and watch movies it's also very much about how cinema is is, is an art form of voyeurs yeah. and so much of what they're watching and that the movie is dedicated to is about watching sex mm-hmm. kissing mm-hmm. connection touching on screen and there are scenes, as much as this feels like a kid's movie at times, there are scenes of people um, masturbating in the theater and getting <laughs> caught while watching it. And so there's this there's this idea, and there's like a resurgence right now in people with people who talk about movies, which is that sex has been removed from movies yeah. because people have become scared of depicting sex, which is like an overcorrection that has come from the fact that it was mostly men, white men controlling the industry, mm-hmm. and so it wasn't really a safe space for the way for 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 women to um to to take to to be to be like that on screen because they were generally being objectified and yeah it was unsafe but the overcorrection has kind of happened and people are like where is the horniness in movies and one of the things that i loved about cinema paradiso was that it was extremely horny (laughs) which i was very surprised by i was very surprised by that with this movie again it's like it's a kind of adolescent Mm -hmm. you know innocent horniness but it's still there and i was i was genuinely shocked by it i i mean this is maybe a stereotype but you know europeans do like to sexualize all their films so (laughs) hey and 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 they're better for it (laughs) true uh yeah i mean this movie also won an academy award for best foreign language film um in the sense 62 second Academy Award. So uh, we have great movies <laughs> in this collection. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the other collection that you uh, you and I are discussing, or actually before we should even say that, you know, if you haven't seen Cinema Paradiso, there's an entire sequence of the film where a theater burns mm-hmm. down. And it's not just reminiscent, but it was the direct influence on Inglorious Bastards when the... Um, when the 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 cinema uh, that Melanie Laurent's uh, character runs um, burns to the ground, um, yes. complete with shots of like you know 
posters catching fire and like images of posters like with flames in front of them it's it's all there and um and i didn't realize until i saw this how much he was referencing cinema paradiso there that's now that you say that it's true like the film camera like the the film rolls is what sets the fire too yeah so yeah and there's a whole and there's the whole idea in, in bastards where they they go over exactly why the film how the film will catch fire and how fast it'll catch fire right. and what it'll do to the whole place. And Cinema Paradiso kind of does the same thing. They talk a lot about how uh, flammable the, the the actual 35 millimeter negatives are, mm-hmm. um, which is just, which is, which is pretty cool. And then I also realized that because when the new Beverly in LA finally reopened, I don't live there, but for some reason I, I follow their Instagram just to get <laughs> jealous of the movies that people can go see on, on film that I can't. It's a great thing. Um, the first film that they opened with was Cinema Paradiso ah, when amazing. they came back from the pandemic. So clearly he's got a, a very deep love for that film. Yes. Um, and the other uh, collection that we're talking about is Beyond the Music. Yes. Um, how are we defining Beyond the Music here? Beyond the Music is uh, like inspiring documentaries, uh, obviously of music, um, that transport you to like these new and unexpected places because as everyone knows, like music comes from all around, from like rock to reggae to blues, jazz. Um, it, it really is just amazing uh, collection with great talented musicians to exist and you know you get to learn about different types of music around the world and you chose uh pina the vim vendors you know documentary i'll Mm -hmm. put documentary in quotes here Mm -hmm. uh on on the dance choreographer pina bosch I grew up dancing, so I do have a love for for the dance world. And um, I mean, Pina is it's a pioneer for the German modern dance. Um, if you ever get to see just you just you, when you watch the movie, you you understand like how creative and what her mind like how she portrayed her ideas in her mind through movement and dance um which is just incredible and it's you know it's 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 a sad story um you know she died like two days before like starting to shoot like they were in pre-production from cancer um and it was like a long planned film collaboration between the director will and and pina the choreographer um so two years later uh wenders decided to go ahead um with the project to like as an homage to his late friend pina and um it's shot in, in in like stunning 3d which is amazing you don't really get to to see that with with like dance <laughs> movies or dance videos all around, so it's a very like visual experience and um, a, a representation of of Pina's art. Um, and the you know it's a it's with an amazing talented group of dancers from um, her her company in Germany, which is um, I'm going to try my best to say it in German, but it's the Tanz Theater. Wuppertald of Peanut Bosch. Um, and it, it's a great, you know, 
a movie to 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 have for her legacy um really one of the greatest like creative um, visionaries out there and it's um it's it has like four pieces like four um dance pieces um i'm gonna try my best again with the names one is like the rite of spring the la sacre du printemps and then one is cafe muller and then the other one is contatov and then the other one is Vodmont. and um they're all very different and uh visually stunning so everyone should should see it do you think and this is a tough question to ask let alone answer do you think the film is possibly better because she wasn't able to take part in it i i mean as any creative in the world you know you always have opinion on your own work and i probably i would think that pino would probably have changed a lot <laughs> from well, what the yeah, movie came out <laughs> i i don't mean that she would have you know bad ideas or that she would help shape it or anything like that but i mean that due to not being able to shoot with her mm-hmm. the filmmakers the vendors had to make some pretty specific choices as to how they were going to tell the story and those choices really inform the beauty of the documentary Mm -hmm. and make it all the more cerebral and ethereal where you know you don't have somebody telling pina's story from beginning to end via talking head with some dance over it it really becomes about experiencing the physicality and the emotions of 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 the choreography and you know when someone does speak they're mostly giving a, 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 a sort of summation, a very brief summation of the deepest part of what it meant to dance for, for, yes, for Pina, exactly. you know, it's, it's, it's not like a, I met Pina in 1948 and we, you know, were at dance school and um, mm-hmm. she was just really mm-hmm. smart, really great. It's like all of a sudden we cut to this man who's centrifugally focused into the camera. He's not looking at the camera and he's saying, in voiceover, he's not even talking to the camera. He's saying in voiceover, she saw beneath my eyes. Mm -hmm. And it's so beautiful and haunting. And I wonder if that was maybe born out of what are we going to do now that we don't have her? Right. You know, and then the way that they intercut, um, old footage of her as Mm -hmm. well is much more abstract than if they were to again like try to use it as b-roll while somebody else is telling the story yeah i also love how the dancers got to also um say something about how pina impacted their lives and how they shaped their lives and how they made their careers better as well so it's very it's very heartwarming and it's also really cool to see the dancers because you think like oh wow that's dancing you know that's it's a way it's it's a way to express yourself. So it's, it's amazing. Um, my choice for beyond the music is a classic. Um, I mean, Pina could be considered a classic too. Classic <laughs> is subjective, I guess, but uh, it's Martin Scorsese's documentary of the band's last waltz. The band has been together 16 years. an impossible way of life. I couldn't uh, live with 20 years on the road. I don't think I could even discuss it. We gave our final concert, the band's final concert. We called it The Last Waltz. Such a night. Such a night. 
which uh, if you haven't seen it and you're listening to this very briefly, Martin Scorsese um, just after, I believe just after New York, New York, or maybe it was while editing New York, New York, um, went and documented the band's last series of concerts, the band being, um, you know, the, the band that backed up Bob Dylan for a while, and then they went out on their own. Um, uh, their most famous song probably being Carry the Weight. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that's what it's called, right? Isn't it Carry the Weight? Thanks. Is it Carry? Carry that way. Yeah, carry, carry that way. I can't believe I couldn't remember that. Uh, <laughs> the most famous song probably being, you know, Carry That Weight. And in this concert, you have people like Bob Dylan show up. You have people like Van Morrison show up. You have Neil Young show up, mm-hmm. who famously had to have a ball of cocaine rotoscoped out of his nose in post-production oh so that the movie would get released. You can still see it. Um <laughs> You have uh, Joni Mitchell show up, who is incredible as always. She just like, you know, blows the doors off. You have Dr. John. It's just an incredible assortment of people who show up live on stage at this concert. And then you have all of these interviews between Marty and 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 Levon Helm and Robbie Robertson, who went on to be a close collaborator of Scorsese's yes. through a number of years being the music uh, supervisor. Um, and I will just say that all of these guys in all of these interviews are um, they're all feeling pretty good and uh, having what seemed like very long conversations. (laughs) Can I ask you a question? Sure. Who's your favorite Bob, Van, Eric, Johnny or Moody? You know, Van Morrison has um, become uh, a bit of a pariah uh, through his anti-vax stuff. And also the music just kind of sucks now. And, um, Mm. but um, when Van Morrison plays Caravan, he's like kicking around and acting crazy. And he just sort of does like a hilarious mic drop at the end, you know, like he's uh, at the end of the, at the end of the song, when it's going, uh, it's jumping into these na, 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 nas. Mm -hmm. Every time it goes into the next one, he's like kicks up and like kicks his body back. And then when he's done, the band is still playing and he just drops the mic and walks off stage. And Robbie Robertson gets into the microphone and is like, Van the man. Like he just like doesn't know what to do about it. Um but then uh but then you have all these backstage interviews between them and the, all these vignettes that Scorsese uh these kind of music videos that Scorsese shoots with the band with these incredible tracking shots and beautiful crane work that like flows over the band as they're playing in this um in these like uh, on these um studio studio stages mixed in with the concert footage and it's just a really like every Scorsese, like there's all these elements that feel extremely alive and mm. raw in the moment. And then all of a sudden it's juxtaposed with something that feels very cinematic and lyrical. Um, and then these sort of documentary scenes of like Martin Scorsese and Levon Helm and Robbie Robertson being like, yeah, we were in Alabama <laughs> telling stories of the road, um, which are, which are all really great stories. I love that film. I've seen it so many times. And last time I watched it was on new year's Eve last oh. year in a cabin in Maine. Well, and that's uh, cool. the people who was with hadn't seen it and they, they went crazy for it. Amazing. Um, yeah. Uh, so I highly recommend, recommend that one. Um, and so, um, if you, yeah, like there is the shorts collection, yes. which you curate, yes. uh, and run, Tell me what is a short people should look out for this. Well, since What's it's, going on? Um, I think everyone should look at um, the video store commercial. It is has a really interesting title, which I love. Um, it's directed by Cody Kennedy and Tim Rutherford, and it 
it's about how this person's trying to um, shoot a commercial of his like video store. <laughs> and, um, and then it just turns into this like, horror um like b movie horror horror boom type of like the 80s kind of thing and it's really only four minutes but it's hilarious but at the same time you have some jump scares in between um and it really just gave me nostalgia a little bit just to going back to like you know the video stores you know i i'm i i know i'm not you know like I, I still grew up going to video stores. So, um, it, it, it gives, it gives you a little bit of nostalgia and it has like really funny moments. And, um, I was really impressed by actually like the special effects they did. Cause the, the monsters slash ghosts, um, are really bloody and like they, and like their face, like, you know, breaks in half and stuff like that. And like, it's very realistic. Um, and you know, it's, it, it's, um, they tell a, a very quick story, but in four minutes, but um, you're really engaged by it. So um, I think it's, it's if you ever, you know, need something different, like a comedy and like a horror, then it's, it's the perfect for you. Awesome. I'll check it out. Well, uh, Thea, thank you so much for talking to me. It's good to hear from you. To, um, to hear your voice. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us for part one of November's staff picks on the You Had Me at Curio podcast. Uh, Next week, we'll be giving you part two. So come back.